0: Hey, well, good morning, everybody. Let's just pray. Lord, I pray that you would come by your Spirit, that you would help me to speak, and that you would give us all ears to hear your voice. In Jesus' name. Amen. I heard a story about a, an au pair girl who hadn't quite mastered the English language. And when she found the children misbehaving one time, instead of saying, what on earth are you doing, she said, what are you doing on earth? Which is actually quite a good question, isn't it? Yesterday, Kirsty walked into my office very purposefully. And then she stopped. And then she looked puzzled. And she looked around baffled. And she said, I've completely forgotten why on earth I walked in here. Have you ever done that? I'm sure you have. I think we all have. Scientist Gabriel Radvansky spent 20 years actually researching the reason why people do that. They walk into a room, they suddenly forget why on earth they went into the room. Because it's not just about bad memory, it's actually a phenomenon called the doorway effect. And what happens is that when you cross a significant boundary, like a doorway, the brain, our brains tend to clear some of our short-term memory. For a very good reason, because usually when you walk from one place to another, it's because you're going to go and do something different. And so the brain wipes out, a bit like clearing the clipboard on your laptop. The brain wipes out some of the short-term memory. But unfortunately, sometimes it wipes out the one thing you really needed at that moment. And so you forget why on earth you've walked through the door. So, and that can be quite funny when it's about trivial things. Eventually, Kirsty remembered that she'd actually walked into my office for an envelope. But there you go. Um, But, actually, do you know, I think a similar problem exists and extends to how we spend much of our lives in a condition of forgetting why on earth we're here in the first place. Forgetting what we are doing on earth. So, would you humour me, just for a moment, by putting up your hand if you are confident that you know what the purpose of your life is. Put your hand up if you're confident that you know what the purpose of your life is. Look at that. So, 90% of you have no idea what on earth you're doing. <laughs> no. This morning I'm going to suggest what that purpose is with one word, and that is worship. The Shorter Westminster Catechism, which is a uh, sounds like a... Um, is, it's a, it's a long long set of words, but the Shorter Westminster Catechism, which is a set of uh, widely accepted description of Christian belief that's been around for 400 years, says that the chief end of man, in other words, our main purpose, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That means worship. We're created in order to worship God, to live in relationship with him, to worship him with our lives. And I'm talking about worship in the widest possible sense of the word, not just about singing songs and sharing bread and wine and listening to God's word, which is a wonderful part of our worship, but living our whole lives in such a way as to glorify God. That is true worship and that, according to the Bible, is the reason that God created us. The prophet Isaiah said that we are created for his glory and you know, in those special moments, I, I, I felt it actually this morning in that lovely time of worship we had, of sung worship we had at the beginning, that when you have that sense of transcendence, or maybe you're on a walk or a drive and you come over the top of a hill or a mountain and you, uh, suddenly you see this huge view, this vista spread out in front of you and something goes through you. It just tells you that you're You're in the presence of something more than just a nice view. Or maybe you're watching a film. For some people, they'll be watching a film and in the most poignant point of that movie, we feel that our souls are touched with a deep longing for something perhaps feels beyond our reach. But in those moments, in those moments, we remember why we are here that our lives have real meaning, that we were created for a divine purpose. That, as the Apostle Paul told the people of Athens, that it's in him, in other words, in God, in Jesus, that we live and move and have our being. And those transcendent moments are wonderful. In those moments, we know our true home. But our problem is, they tend to be quite short-lived. And when we walk through the next doorway enter the next shop, get off the next bus, go through the school gates, whatever that doorway is, we forget why we're here, to worship the one true and living God. And when we do that, when we forget, then instead of treating one another as precious people made in the image of God, we see each other perhaps as simply problems or handy places to download our own problems or you name it, fill in the blank. And when we forget, instead of getting on the bus and looking for an opportunity to bless someone, we rush for the last seat before someone else gets it. (coughs) Instead of seeing our workplaces as an environment where we can invest in God's kingdom, we see them as places to advance ourselves or as necessary evils in order to pay the bills. Quite simply, there are two ways to spend our lives. In worship of God or in forgetful self-absorption. So, what's all that got to do with Nehemiah? Good question, Pads. Well, chapters 11 and 12, which I'm drawing from today, show us just how Nehemiah encouraged God's people who had rebuilt the wall of Jerusalem to understand what they'd done and why they'd done it and how it affected their future through an extraordinary demonstration of worship. And there are many aspects to this worship, but I'm going to focus on just four of them. And the first one is sacrifice. And before we turn to Nehemiah, Paul the Apostle, writing to the church in Rome, begins chapter 12 with these words, which incidentally were a key message on the Alpha Day, on the afternoon last Saturday. And they say a lot about what it looks like to worship God with our lives. But here we go. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and pleasing to God, this is your true and proper worship. Paul says that one key aspect of lives of worship is sacrifice. Has anyone here heard of something called the Eden Project? And by the way, I'm not talking about the lovely tourist attraction in Cornwall, but the Christian Mission to the poorest estates in some of the most deprived areas of the country, the Eden Project. For those of you who don't, what it involves is ordinary Christians who probably could afford to live in much nicer places, choosing to go and live on some of the poorest, run-down, crime-ridden estates in the UK in order to be the light of Christ in those communities and become part of the transformation of those communities. But it's a huge sacrifice. Instead of their children going to schools in the suburbs, they now have to go to a school which probably comes in at the bottom of the National League tables. Instead of having a nice coffee shop nearby, there's a betting shop, a pawnbroker, an off-licence, and the rest are boarded up. Cars are broken into all the time. Needles that have been used for injecting heroin are lying on the street. But since it started, hundreds of committed Christians have felt called to move into such estates as part of the Eden Project in order to bring God's love to those communities. And that is the kind of thing, I think, that Paul means when he says, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. And do you know something? That's exactly what Nehemiah asks God's people to do in chapter 11. So please grab a Bible. Turn to page 495, because this is off the service sheet. This isn't on the service sheet. So grab a Bible, turn to page 495, because we're just going to have a look briefly at the first few verses of chapter 11. Now if you'll remember that the wall of Jerusalem has been rebuilt, but the city itself is largely unpopulated. It's a mess. It was destroyed by the invaders many years before. And if you remember the reports that came back to Nehemiah when he lived in Susa over to the east, at the very beginning of this this series we've had on Nehemiah, those reports said that Jerusalem was a disgrace. It was like a sink estate in a deprived inner city area, probably much worse. Now look at chapter 11, verse 1. Now the leaders of the people settled in Jerusalem. Stop right there. The leaders set an example. The city needed repopulating and clearing up, but they didn't just send in the troops. The leaders were the first to make the sacrifice. They moved out of their nice country residences outside the city and moved into the mess. Isn't that so Jesus-like? I love the message version of 1 John, sorry, John 1, 14. The word became flesh and moved into the neighbourhood. That's exactly what God did in Jesus. He came to earth. Philippians says he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. He humbled himself and even became obedient to death on a cross. It's awesome what he did to save us from our sin and from death. And when we return that love with our own lives, that is worship. So the leaders went first. But the verse continues, the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of every ten of them to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while the remaining nine were to stay in their own towns. And the people commended all who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. Do you know what's fascinating about this account is the total submission of the people to the will of God. Because although you and I might think that casting lots is nothing more than just sort of the throw of a dice, the Bible tells of many occasions where casting lots was a faith-filled method of, s- of submitting to the will of God. The last occasion being in the book of Acts, if you remember, when the disciples cast lots to see who should replace Judas as the 12th apostle. They never doubted that the lot cast delivered the will of God. But that aside, what we see here is a large number of people who are living in the relative security of the surrounding towns and cities, sacrificing that security to move into a very uncertain future. And that is a perfect example of worship, offering themselves as living sacrifices. And the rest of chapter 11 and the first part of chapter 12 is a list of all the people by name who moved into the city of Jerusalem and made that sacrifice. And so we'll skip over that. But the reason those names are there is because the history writers wanted to honour those people who glorified God by making that sacrifice. So what about us? How much are you and I prepared to sacrifice in order to bring glory to God? I was deeply moved when almost eight years ago about 20 people decided to give up their much-cherished church family a couple of miles down the road to come on an adventure with Kirsty and I to St Matthew's. And over those years since then, I've been deeply moved by the people of St Matthew's who were here before we came, who have accepted so much change and embraced it and come together as a church family with those who arrived seven or eight years ago. But what's the next adventure that God is calling you to now? It might be to give up a weekday evening to help with the youth group. It might be to explore the possibility of offering yourself for ordained ministry. It might be running an alpha course in your home. What's God calling you to as the next adventure But I'm going to jump forward now to chapter 12 and verse 27, which is the beginning of the reading printed on the service sheet. And as we look at, we're going to look at some of the other aspects of what it means to worship God with our lives. And now we come to much more familiar territory because now we see the aspect of worship, which is celebration. At my daughter Kylie's church in South Africa, where she lives, where incidentally we'll be on January the 5th, They call the Sunday morning service celebration. In her community, if someone says to you, are you going to celebration tomorrow? What they're asking you is, are you going to church tomorrow? But they call it celebration. Verse 27 says, at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, the Levites were sought out from where they lived and were brought to Jerusalem to celebrate joyfully the dedication with songs of thanksgiving and with the music of cymbals, harps and lyres. The musicians were brought together from the region around Jerusalem. And actually, I almost wish now I'd had the the music team up here at this moment. They could do a drum roll and sort of crash the cymbal and, you know, hit the keyboard. But um, what, what we see here, cymbals, harps and lyres. Drum kits, guitars, keyboards. What's changed? Did you know that God loves music? And I don't think he's partial to any particular kind of music. Most of the Psalms were songs that were inspired by God and written for music. Many of them, in fact, begin with instructions to the worship leader. God's people in both the Old and the New Testaments are encouraged to give glory to God through the gift of musicians, singers and the voices of the congregation. Paul the Apostle, in his letters to both the Ephesian church and the Colossians, encourages the churches to use psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to worship the Lord Jesus. And most traditional hymns and our contemporary songs today are drawn or inspired from Scripture as their main source of inspiration. Our Sunday morning gatherings here, these celebrations, are a vital aspect of how we worship God with our lives. But in addition to celebration, worship can also be a powerful form of witness. Nehemiah didn't get all these musicians and singers together and keep them behind four closed walls. We read in chapter 12, verse 31, that he had the leaders of Judah go up on top of the wall. I also, it says, that's Nehemiah speaking, I also assigned two large choirs to give thanks and if you read on, you'll find that what happened was this. It's amazing. The two choirs processed up onto the top of the walls. You could, these, these were big walls. They're more like kind of the Great Wall of China than you, know, than, 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 you know, the wall of your house. So the two choirs processed up onto the walls and then they, they split and they went in opposite directions and they processed worshipping all the way around the walls that had been rebuilt until they met at the temple where they then went into the temple and continued To worship. It says uh, in verse 43, great sacrifices were were offered. Rejoicing, because God had given them great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. And it says, the sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. It was loud. (laughs) What a witness. And do you see what Nehemiah did? What he did was he connected... The worship with the mission. The mission had been the restoration of the wall. So what did he do? He had them worship on the wall. No one in that city on that day could have been in any doubt that God was being worshipped and glorified because the wall had been rebuilt and restored by God's will and under his leading, guiding and equipping hand. All the glory went to God. Their worship was a powerful witness. And worship is a powerful witness today. God ambushed me in the context of worship almost 19 years ago in a little thatched-roofed church in the bush in South Africa amongst a group of people who were worshipping God with all their hearts. And when a non-believer finds themselves in the presence of true worship, I think one of two things usually happens. Either the non-believer runs for the hills because it's they can't be in the presence of the power of the Holy Spirit, or they encounter the Holy Spirit and nothing is ever the same again. And for me, that day in March 2000 was that day that the witness of true worship overwhelmed me and changed my life forever. In the last couple of years at St Matthew's, we have tried in small ways too to better connect our mission and our worship. If you remember when we had Southcote's Big Questions two years ago, And uh, we concluded that with an outdoor session out on on the grass where we could be seen by the community. We invited the community to come and hear the answers to some of those big questions of life that we'd been asking them to give us and connecting our mission with our worship. This summer, we held an evening service, again out on the grass as well, for all the community to see and join in with if they wanted to, connecting our mission with our worship. In two weeks' time... Please join us as each year we do this, we, we have carols in the square out there where we have a really good number of people come and we connect our mission with our worship as we all sing carols together and retell the Christmas story with the community of Southcote. But you may have other mission fields too. I'm sure you do. It may be your workplace, your office or your gym. You know, Martin Booker there, I'm going to embarrass him again. Martin Booker is one of the best places, but one of the best people I know at connecting his worship of God and his mission field that God's given him in his workplace and with his neighbors. He's always inviting them to church or dragon boat racing or the games evening or, or cycle rides or alpha courses, whatever it is. He's always connecting his worship with his mission field. And I know many others who do that too. There are some here today who are helping to run an alpha course for people in their community. And that's connecting our worship and our mission. Worship is witness, and witness is worship. And finally, and briefly, the end of the passage suggests to us that worship is also an act of sharing, or sharing as an act of worship, And it's the sharing of all that God has given us in order to bring glory to God. Verse 47, the last verse um, of that passage. In the days of Zerubbabel and of Nehemiah, all Israel contributed the daily portions for the musicians and the gatekeepers. They also set aside the portion for the other Levites, and the Levites set aside the portion for the descendants of Aaron. So authentic worship includes the offering by all God's people of our money, and our time, and our, our service, our gifts, for the Lord's work. So after the exciting service of dedication on the wall, once that was over, provision had to be made for the ongoing worship life of the people of God in Jerusalem. And everybody contributed. At St Matthew's, as, as most of you know, we don't take a regular collection on a Sunday morning only for special offerings. And that's not because we don't want everybody to contribute to St Matthew's, but it's because we don't want newcomers to the church to find that one of the first things they're asked to do is to sort of get their wallets out. We don't want to do that. That's why most of us give by, or many of us give by standing order, because that way it's easy and, and we don't forget. But actually, even if some of us don't have very much at all, like those Israelites in Nehemiah's day, we can all contribute a little, And there are some offering boxes on the wall on your way out where you can give a gift if you're able to. And those of us who have more, of course, we contribute more. And those of us who have less, contribute what they can. But what this passage shows us is that one of the important aspects of worship is giving some of what we have to the ministry of the church and the ongoing worship life of God's people, which is such a powerful witness. So, in conclusion, if when we walked in this morning we couldn't remember why on earth we're here or what, on earth, what we're doing on earth, now we know. <laughs> Worship. And when we go out of the doorway of the church into the week, what's important is that we don't forget that that's the purpose of our lives. Every day, every week, every month, at home, at work, at play, whatever it is, What Nehemiah shows us in these chapters is that there's a God who loves us, who made us for relationship with him, that our response to that love is to live lives of worship that glorify him. Sacrifice, just as Jesus sacrificed his life for us. Celebration, as we joyfully acknowledge his purpose is being worked out around us. Witness, as we connect our worship with our mission field and sharing as we contribute our resources and our gifts to the worship of God. So next time someone walks into the room and says to you, I've completely forgotten why on earth I came in here, just turn to them and say, I know exactly why you came in here, to worship God. It's the chief end of man. It's the primary purpose that he created us for and it's our response to his great love and mercy. Amen.